bitches bad and bullshit. Welcome to the Bad and Bitchy Podcast. I'm Erin. And I'm Erica. And Erica, it's hot in Ottawa. It's Ottawa season. <laughs> well played. Well played. <laughs> um, not a lot of announcements really at the top here. You know, I think you wanted to promote your newsletter through Not My Color. So Not In My Color has a newsletter. Um, it really is to start sort of like these conversations in your organizational teams, a lot about the stuff we talk about here. And um, if you sign up, you get access to my Hill Times article f- for free. Ooh, paywall free. Paywall free articles. I love a paywall-free content. And, of course, we stick episodes of Bad and Bitchy in it, so it's just a nice, like, it's like Bad and Bitchy inside voice. Mm, right. Oh, yeah, that's true. It literally is. Yeah. 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 Um, and for those who don't know what Not In My Color is, do you want to let them know? Okay, so Not In My Color is a consultancy that basically – Our whole mantra, our whole reason for being is to build inclusive organizations and anti-oppressive and anti-racist organizations, basically. So that could look like training. It could look like um, coaching, like leadership coaching. It could look like like advisory services where we we actually review and make um, recommendations to change actual policies that might be unintentionally discriminatory, but you mm. don't know until you look under the hood. So we look under the hood. We are the, like, bad and bitchy is the what and why, and I feel like not in my color is the how. Yes, I think that is an accurate description. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, by the way, we're also starting, like, a subscription group encouraging, like, like people to use their voices more effectively in this organization like how do you call out racism how do you Mm -hmm. call out sexism how do you do that so stay tuned for that if you sign up for the newsletter you'll get all that information and so we're heavily 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 encouraging you to go on notinmycolor.com and I think it's like you know it's basically in the menu join us or something so we will leave a link in show notes it's literally just not in my color.com. And I also want to, I'm curious about Aaron's newsletter because this sounds, is it, is it sports based or is it no. pop culture based? It's, it's kind of everything that we don't really talk about here. So it's a little bit of, so it's called ebb and flow. It's on Substack. Um, it is like pop culture. Um, it is some sports. And it's just kind of like general life musings. Um, so, and yeah, just like how, how I think about intersectionality more broadly than the scope of what we cover here. And so, sometimes recommendations on like books and shit. Okay, so I'm going to sign up. We're going to, and I'm signing you up for mine. <laughs> I'm just telling you that. <laughs> and um, yeah. We'll see. Uh, I don't see why we can't feature some of this on the pod anyway. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. 
All right. So on that uh, note. All right. So Erica, this week in fem- feminism, we're going to be talking about Islamophobia. And um, this topic really came about um, following a Pakistani Canadian family um, being, well, murdered um, in a horrific act of Islamophobia um, or anti um, Arab hate crime uh, in London, Ontario, about a week ago. And police have said that the family, uh, the father, Salman Afsal, the mother, Madiha Salman, and the uh, 15-year-old Yumna Afsal and the grandmother, Talat Afsal, were targeted because of their Muslim faith and hit by a speeding truck. A nine-year-old boy was also attacked in the incident, but survived with serious but non-life-threatening injuries. And so the attack took place in the city of London, Ontario, um, which is kind of a suburb-ish of Toronto for those who are unfamiliar with it. A 20-year-old Canadian man, AKA White, has been charged with four counts of murder and one count of attempted murder. Police have named the alleged attacker as Nathaniel Veltzman, who is 20, of uh, London. And he was arrested without incident at a shopping center nearby. The attack was the worst against Muslim Canadians since six people were killed in a Quebec City mosque in 2017. Um, Deputy Superintendent Paul Waite uh, last week at a news conference said, quote, it is believed that these victims were targeted because they were Muslim, end quote. While police are weighing possible terrorism charges, um, it is also believed to be a hate crime. So it's but it's also not known if the suspect has any ties to any hate groups. And I believe um, Justin Trudeau said that it was an act of terrorism. Yeah. Um, And this is really just the latest in incidences against uh, Muslims in Canada. Back in March, uh, five black Muslim women, uh, all Somali Canadians were wearing hijabs and were attacked or threatened um, in the last like 10 weeks. So like early 2021, you know, five women just like harass, attack, threatened in Edmonton. Um, And in response to that, the Al-Rashid Mosque began offering Muslim women self-defense classes following those attacks. And (laughs) sadly, but also amazingly, the classes are all full. Going back to 2020 uh, in Edmonton um, in December, a mother and daughter were violently attacked in a Southgate parking lot, which is presumably a mall. Um, And a week later in that same parking lot, another woman was subject to racial slurs as someone tried to hit hit her head with a shopping bag. And then in February, a man made racial comments and became aggressive towards a woman at the University of Alberta Transit Center the same day, another man came up came be- up behind a woman walking in a popular neighborhood, pushed her to the ground, and made threats to kill her and tear off her burqa. Uh, it seems sounds very similar to the anti Asian hate crimes. Um, yeah. And then yeah. and then the latest attack in uh, in Edmonton was February seventeenth. Um, And the National Council of Canadian Muslims said that a man approached a black Muslim woman wearing a hijab at the Century Park Transit Station, swore at her and threatened to kill her. Uh, Mustafa Farouk of the National Council of Canadian 
Muslims said, quote, anti-Black racism is a real problem in Alberta. Black Muslim women tend to face greater challenges than almost anyone else because racism and gendered Islamophobia are real problems. Recent allies and marches in Edmonton and Calgary in opposition to COVID-19 measures are examples of how the pandemic has exacerbated racism in Alberta. Some participants were seen carrying oh, tiki torches, which may, many say are a symbol used by white supremacists. Yeah, there's been a lot of um, the the hate crimes against um, Black Muslim women, especially in Edmonton, really, like, is really a problem there. Mm -hmm. And um, Southgate on the south side of Edmonton, the south side of Edmonton is pretty <laughs> not white. Mm -hmm. and um, And so it is common that where people of color congregate it's it's a you know a safe haven for white supremacy and 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 hate crimes and so on mm. and so forth yeah so yeah. i just want to i just want to provide like some definitions first so like i think that we all kind of generally have an idea of what terrorism is but like the like actual definition of, of terrorism is very broad it's the unlawful use of violence and intimidation, especially against civilians, in the pursuit of political aims, which is kind of meaningless to me. Yeah, because what's a political aim? That's unsatisfactory. Yeah. Um, <laughs> listen, I was, I was going to get into, like, definitions of, like, crimes against humanity and that sort of thing, in which case, like, I think they could also be terrorism. Y yeah so i mean I yeah <laughs> just, okay sure. but i but i also like i think like in in doing like this research and the reading for this um you know i think that a lot of particularly white people but just people generally are very uninformed as to the difference between arabs and muslims Mm, oh, yeah and like and so like we think that that technically refers to the same people yeah but really like arabs are people who speak arabic as a native language and identify themselves as arabs whereas muslims are those who practice the religion of islam and many arabs so here this is gonna like we're gonna need to take a quick break and like think about this for a second because it took me a while Many Arabs are not Muslims, and not all Muslims are Arabs. Yeah, because if you think of Iran, is a great example of that. Mm -hmm. I, Irani, like, they're Persians, they're not mm -hmm. Arabs. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so, but they're still Muslims. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. Indonesia has, what, the <laughs> largest Muslim population in the world. Well, exactly. And, so, and like, they're not Arabs. Yeah. yeah. So more than a billion people in the world are Muslim, but fewer than 15% of Muslims worldwide are Arabs. And the more majority of Muslims live outside the Middle East in places like Indonesia, Thailand, Malaysia, India, and Pakistan. Yeah, Malaysia is another place too. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and of course, know, Pakistan, yes. And yeah. of course, China. And <laughs> yeah, that's another that's another episode. But yes, mm -hmm. and um, so like, and mm -hmm. I think that you know, there's there's confusion between these things because 
the fact that like Arabic is pri the primary language of is the Islamic faith, just as like Latin was of like Catholicism until, you know, English took over. Therefore, like, yeah, so I think it's really confusing. I well, it's we also wrapped up in the, that geo, the political geography mm -hmm. of the Middle East. Yeah. And I think that's where we take the idea of Islam from. Mm -hmm. Because, well, it's been wholly reinforced yeah. by, by media. Yeah. And I was listening to an episode of the Toronto Stars podcast, This Matters, where um, what the, one of the co-hosts, Saba, was speaking to uh, another colleague who is, uh, an, uh, who is Islamic. And she wears a hijab and she's a reporter at the star, uh, Noor Javed. Um, and she was basically saying that she doesn't like saying Islamophobia. She prefers anti-Arab hate crime because I think that we're, we, what's really taking place is like an anti-Arab sentiment and necessarily an anti, an, an Islamophobic sentiment. Got it. Got it. Hence your whole overview of the definitions. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I would say that, well, it just, it, it just, I guess it just kind of buttresses what I, what I said about the context of mm -hmm. Islam that is, that is familiar to North America. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, like getting into kind of the statistics of it all, like hate crimes against Muslims in Canada grew 253% between 2012 and 2015, um, which <laughs> is an astronomical amount. And I would say that the only comparison to that is like the, the rise in anti-Asian hate crimes over the past like 18 months. Yeah. Um, uh, results from a 26 forum poll revealed that 41% of Canadian adults expressed some level of bias against identifiable racial groups with Muslims having the highest negative rating at 28%. I think we're probably not asking the right question there. Yeah. Um, another survey published in 2016 by the Ontario Council of Agencies Serving Immigrants. Well, that's a mouthful found that only 32% of Ontarians had a positive impression of Islam. Um, a survey done for Radio Canada, so Quebec's CBC, mm. oh, um, revealed that almost one in four Canadians would favor a ban on Muslim immigration, with the level of support for this ban rising to 32% in Quebec. Oh, the kill surprise. Um, <laughs> many respondents uh 51 percent across canada with a more concentrated 57 percent in quebec felt that the presence of muslims in this country made them somewhat or very worried about security um and i think it's important to emphasize that the percentage of muslims in canada is 3.2 percent the point is is that like you said there's a disproportionate amount of hate directed towards muslims in canada yeah, and, and like you were said at the beginning, you know, this is something that has been normalized in Western nations, right? Like, it, it's a really big issue. And it's a bias that makes white people or non-Arab, non-Muslim people very uncomfortable to unpack. Yeah, yeah. Because, because 
it, you can't quite pinpoint the one thing other than quote unquote terrorism. And like, I think we can all agree terrorism's bad. Well, yeah. But you know, terrorists aren't only Muslims or Arabs, you know? We yeah. See, we see white terrorists all the time. We see domestic terrorism all the time. But like, that's only recent though. Sure. That's only recent that that's even come to the forefront because not even like nobody was reporting on it. Nobody was paying attention. Um, I think that one of the failings of the past 20 years has been the fact that you impose these draconian policies and in the name of national security, there was not a counterbalance in terms of uh, increasing support for human rights legislation or human rights offices or discri- the discrimination. They just kind of left it. Mm. And, you know, I, I the normalization of Islamophobia is is patriotic, actually, in in the way that it was constructed. And mm. I think that's a huge problem, too, and, and where it's, it's, it differs from other types of racism or discrimination. Western imperialism, um, more Western imperialism than colonialism, and I know there's a fine line there, but when I think of colonialism, I think of, um, uh, like, one country actually overtaking, running, administering, and like taking over, occupying mm. and taking over another country. And when I think of imperialism, that's not necessarily the case all the time, especially with uh, Americans in the Middle East. You have like the specific Middle Eastern policy, this Western imperialism, immigration, like anti, especially anti um anti-arab and anti-black immigration policies all in the name of national security that has been established by the state and then kind of seeps out into it's interpreted by the larger community that these people are our enemies and these people are enemy combatants mm-hmm. so you know we it is our patriotic duty to protect our this is why I don't do nationalism because of all of that it's not surprising that things like the moss shooting and um this atrocity as well as countless other um smaller attacks have happened it 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 should have been a foreseen consequence yeah i i think that a lot of people were really shocked by the brazenness of the attack last week on the family. Um, and I mean specifically more white people. Uh, non- they always surprise though. They no, always I- surprise at their own fucking violence and brutality. They really are. <laughs> and I'm just like, no, you all have been like, hello, history. <laughs> I'm just saying. Sorry. My point is that like, I think people were more shocked now and like more upset about this than they have been in the past. I saw a lot more empathy. I saw a lot more like people sharing the story and like follow-ups and like being like, this is really an issue. Whether what they do with that information internally is a different story, but I think people are just like more, more open to saying this is wrong. This is bad. I didn't realize this was 
like this. And I, I think part of that is it's a small step forward in terms of like people educating themselves following like the George Floyd and Black Lives Matter and like taking the time to read the news. And like, I appreciate that, but like how many times can we keep saying, oh, I'm surprised. Well, yeah, how many people have to die before you stop feigning shock and horror? And this, these, these I statements, okay, <laughs> really irritate me. I feel, it's like, this, has, this doesn't have anything to do with you. Nobody gives <laughs> a shit about, how, I feel bad. Well, what do you want, a cookie? Like, <laughs> what do you want, like a, you want a gold star for, for like, being a human being <laughs> I, just, mm. I just you know there comes a point where there's only so much of i feel bad and i think i i i and how this personally affects me mm. to be there's only so much of that i could take sure and so my messages were more like i feel you solidarity you know, um, God, I know how this feels. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it was more like that. Um, and I just want you to know that, you know, basically you, like, you have a friend in me mm-hmm. kind of thing. Totally. You're not alone. This is the whole thing. It's funny. Karen Pugelis from uh, Ryerson and APTN mm-hmm. um, was on... That dusty ass show at issue. <laughs> I watched two episodes in a row and like that was <laughs> it. Okay. She said she said something and they had to bring her on because these dusty people are like don't have the rage to come up with this. Okay. They just don't. So Rosie Barton asked, Oh, well, is there anything different about this time about the residential schools and cam loops and so on? You know what she said? She said, you know, yes, because George Floyd and because Black Lives Matter and because they that movement gave us all space and gave people a lot of education and opened their eyes in terms of, okay, that part I'm paraphrasing, but, you know, open their eyes in terms of exactly what you're saying, this understanding, this openness to understand oppression, racial um, oppression. Um, I hate the word ethnic. I, I feel like the word ethnic feels racist. Oh. It just feels racist. Yes. Okay, but different marginalized communities and what marginalization actually means and what that means for for them, for us, for whatever. But she did say this. She says, in all these discussions that we're having now about residential schools, Indigenous people aren't having them by themselves. She said, what Black Lives Matter means is that we are not alone anymore. And I was just like, that was some powerful shit. And I was just like, wow. So going back to what you're saying, the outpouring, the coverage was different. Mm-hmm. I thought as much as I stayed away from media, like I didn't read anything or I did today and the national had a whole half hour of coverage, which is a lot in TV land or mm-hmm. 20 minutes or whatever. The willingness 
to crack the exterior of who we are is what I'm seeing more now. Mm. But it's from like the millennial generation and younger. I do notice that there is a generational difference. Yeah, I would say that's true. I was talking to a friend and he was talking to me about how he had taken some time off work the the week following the discovery of the residential school's grave. Yeah. And he was like, I am stressed that I took this week off work because I should be at work fighting to make sure that we are talking about this, that we are having discussions and whatever. And I said, yes, but... Like, I understand your sentiment. I understand that, like, what you what you want to do. But also, my guess is that your colleagues also believe that they are allies and they are supporters of all of these things. And if they are what they say they are, then they also need to fight. They also need to make sure that those conversations are happening. And it cannot fall on you as a racialized person. Sign up for Not In My Colors newsletter to find out how. (laughs) I'm just saying. One of the articles, so one of my articles in the Hill Times I wrote was, um, sometimes I write like filler pieces when stuff isn't really going on, but there's something I want to say, right? Mm. So I wrote something, is it the cancel culture one? No. Um, Wrote something on talking about politics at work. Right. And how basically it should be the new norm. Yeah. You cannot be in um, a workplace and have this fucking elephant in the room. If you're a, if you're like a, a, a Muslim Canadian, you no, know, especially if you visibly wear hijab, you have to put, you have to put up with fucking microaggressions of white people vomiting their grief on you. Okay. Mm-hmm. But it's not even their community. So literally yeah. they don't give a fuck. Yeah. Okay. They just want to look like they're giving a fuck. Yeah. And, you know, plus you have to like educate people now. Yeah. All of these things happen. Boom. The moment, the moment an atrocity like this happens. The yeah. moment. And Which- not through your own volition, by the way. Which isn't to say that, like, these topics shouldn't be discussed in the workplace. I think that they should be. The problem is that we, I think there is a feeling that we need to do it and we need to do it right away to, like, to address the issue while it's still topical without, one, recognizing that these issues are always topical. And two, without any care and attention to the actual issue. We just want to address it very in a very reactionary way. But there is going to be one, a difference in views, and you need to account for that. You need to think the whole situation through and how any possible scenarios for a discussion. And you need to make sure that you have someone facilitating the conversation who can talk about anti-oppression, who can talk about racism in a way that is like not aggressive and that everyone feels like they're being heard because almost always there's going to be someone who says that they're they're being attacked because someone said white people. And that's not a slur. <laughs> because, because 
white people can be afford can afford to say that race is neutral because their race is the stat like the default. Because like, these conversations are almost certainly going to talk about white supremacy, and that makes we people should be uncomfortable. talking about white supremacy. And that's what all—that's the whole thing. It's always yeah. topical, but it's always as soon as you bring up white supremacy, people shut down and they get defensive. Yeah, because they think that we're calling them white supremacists. They don't listen. Okay, no. they don't bloody well listen. And as soon as you say white, white people just shut off. As soon as you say white people as an identification like identifying marker that's when they shut down i i am not really i am not really into to sidestepping white people's feelings okay however one of the things we do do this is gonna be like i'm gonna be dropping not in my color uh one of the things we do do is um, like facilitate these discussions in a way like for teams, right? And one of the gr- best ways that I've found to do it is to do it through like actual discussion and thought exercises. Mm. So one of the things that I asked once was like, think of a social movement that you last paid attention to. Why mm-hmm. did you pay attention to it? Mm-hmm. What is it about this social movement that reached you? Mm-hmm. So those kinds of questions and like mining sort of engagement and and peeling back layers, there are ways to do it, is my point. Mm-hmm. You don't have to do like, you don't have to be confrontational about it. That's what Twitter's for, you <laughs> know? That's what our podcast is for. It doesn't mm-hmm. always have to come out this way. It can also be done in a way that number one doesn't involve a fucking three-hour PowerPoint presentation. I hate those. And number two, in a way that actually gets people talking to each other. Uh And it's actually pretty fun because I've seen the realizations within one session, and that's what makes it awesome Cool for me. Anyway. Yeah. Um, I'm just saying there are ways. Call call me. But yeah, so like uh, in Vice, Manisha Krishnan uh, wrote a story about, you know, in the wake of the killing of the Afzal Salman family in London, Ontario, Muslim Canadians told Vice World News, Islamophobia is still palpable in their daily lives, but not enough people care. I would say yes. 100%. Absolutely. Absolutely. People don't give a shit. This is a really hard issue for non-Arabs and non-Muslims to unpack because you know, after 9-11, we were inundated with images and probably going back to the Gulf War, we were inundated with images of Muslims and Arabs being warmongers and doing these, you know, acts of terrorism or being blamed potentially wrongfully. And all we kept, we just kept othering them, right? We kept saying, those are terrorists, we are not. And now we have to like undo and unlearn all of the things that we've been, that have been thrown in our faces for, I think for white people, especially, it's really hard for them to accept the fact that there are also white terrorists. And even though this is more of a new thing, um, given the rise of like the far right, um, but the far right, like when they're committing acts of terrorism, like 
driving. So uh, Charlottesville, the driving over Heather Hare, um, Black Lives Matter protests. There were so many cars just like running into people and ram- running them over to like break up the protest. Even those, police cars. Yeah. Those are tactics that ISIS used, that Hamas used. They ain't so different, eh? Like there are tons of in scholarly terms of, articles of the yeah. implementation yeah. of terror. Yeah. yeah. Like there are tons of scholarly articles that looking at this exact phenomenon when even if um, a Muslim woman in a hijab or a burqa is walking down the street, like a white person is probably like a little bit hesitant because they quote unquote, don't know who's under there or um, because we've just been taught quote unquote taught that that's what a terrorist looks like. Mm -hmm. For sure. And you know, when you get to the media part, we'll expand on that, but that is media's problem. That's the problem with media. It shapes our perceptions. Uh, I think we just talked about the media part now, like Canada land has a really good rundown of how post media has pushed Islamophobic attitudes across Ontario. Basically. So post media, um, they are, is, Canada's largest newspaper chain with 121, 120 plus brands in six provinces. Five of those are Sun branded tabloids that they purchased from Quebecor in 2015. Um, and as with any media chain, content gets shared across the network. So that includes material from the Toronto Sun, which was recently described by former Toronto Star and current CNN reporter Daniel Dale as having, quote, by far the worst roster of political columnists at any big city paper in Canada or the US. Um, And so some of the things like they have headlines such as, quote, some fears of Islam are justified, human rights lawyer tells M103 committee. But like they pay Barbara Kay. Yeah. To spread her Islamophobia. And they pay all over the place. Tarek Fatah. Oh, good Lord. Yep. 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 Tarek Fatah, um, you know, there's a quote here from something that he, oh, in the London Free Press uh, published uh, a Sun column by Tarek Fatah um, that attempted to allay fears around the UN's Global Compact for Migration, which was, as a reminder, a non-binding agreement for countries that had 23 intended outcomes by drawing distinction between good immigrants and bad. Quote, critics are not adverse to Filipinos or Venezuelans in our midst. Thousands of students from India enrich our universities while the boat people, pardon, of Hmm. Vietnam have long entwined into our fabric. Canadians fear the arrival of Islamic radicals bringing anti-West values such as polygamy, burqas, Sharia-based laws, and gender segregation but no one wishes to be labeled Islamophobic. The fear of the Muslim radical is real. The damage done by Islamic terrorists and Jew-hating clerics can still be undone, but not if radicals can prove to new recruits that Western society is intolerant, end quote. Listen, this is a peak model minority myth. Oh my gosh, yeah, they love to like, (sighs) oh, okay. Yeah, I mean the National Post is is known for its um Fox News like slant. 
imagine being in this sort of time in our history and only having the National Post, CBC, CTV News, and Global. The challenge with a company like Post Media is that, you know, sure, they've got all these tabloid-ish papers that are widely read around a province like Ontario and probably Alberta. But for people who are, quote unquote, within the Ottawa bubble or are perhaps a little bit more, I don't want to say well-read, but I'll use it anyway, in terms of their media consumption, or maybe more informed in terms of their media consumption. Or maybe just more institutional about their media consumption. No, 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 no. That's not what I mean. Um, Who who um, laugh at all of the sun branded publications. Oh, okay. They post media still with the national post can put lipstick on a pig and make it seem like this is the more educated. Right. Right. Perspective. So you're not, you're not reading trash. You're reading educated people have a fancy discussion. Right. Well, isn't that the the whole like appeal of Jordan Peterson? Uh, I would say he's faux intellectualism. Yeah, but but you know, so is post media. I guess. Listen, as as people who have been through like the editing process, we have been asked for citations all the time. Yeah, that. Thank you. Okay, thank you, Aaron. Okay, obviously we're like. Thank you. We're pulling back the curtain. We really are. Okay. So um, it's true. Whenever you write about, um, you know, racism or sexism or, or the treatment of marginalized communities, editors will come back to you with, where do you see this? Do you have evidence to back this up? Blah, 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 blah. And we're like, obviously, yes. Okay. <laughs> We didn't realize you wanted footnotes, okay? But if you read the takes of these especially white men and white women of a certain age who are in the institutions, who are, who are part of the establishment, they don't have to cite anything. That article last week had zero citations, zero. Like, it just goes to show, it just reminds me of how white supremacy works. So as long as you're upholding white supremacy in Canadian media, you don't have to prove anything. As long as you are going against that grain, then they'll ask you for your firstborn. And this is the thing is that, is that we get a lot of white male um, punditry that is unsubstantiated. And that's what's shaping a lot of our behaviors and beliefs about, you know, people in marginalized communities, especially Muslims. So as I've, as I've alluded before, um, the, I think the Islamophobia we see today has very direct roots to the post 9-11 response of the United States that was then sort of exported 
to other Western nations. Think about the age of the killer and 9-11. This guy was 20. He was probably born in like 2001. Yeah, around 2001, Mm. around September 11th. This is like this generation of white males. Okay. So basically the response to 9-11 equated Islam with terrorism and also conflated immigration with terrorism. And there's an immigration piece in here that like, we just don't have the time to expand on. Um, But there is a piece of the weapon, like the weaponization of the immigration system to surveil um, Muslims and just people in color in general. Uh, In the aftermath of 9-11, the U.S. government increasingly implemented special programs with the hopes of curbing and counterizing terrorism and enemy combatants. Although it is not explicitly stated in official documents, these policies, such as the U.S. Patriot Act and the National Security Entry Exit Registration System, have been targeted towards and thus disproportionately affected Arabs, South Asians, and Muslims in America. This is the war on terror. So just a quick um, interjection to say that this season of Slow Burn uh, is talking about what happened, the war in Afghanistan and like what happened in the wake of 9-11. Oh, nice. So I think that's a good follow-up listen that like, I think it's seven or eight episodes. Is that the Slate one? Yeah. Okay. So S- Slow Burn is a Slate podcast. Yeah. And they've got a whole bunch of different seasons and it changes every season. It's a different deep dive into an issue. Is this the same one that did the Biggie and Tupac thing? Yeah. Oh, right. Yes. Okay. Um, so the problem with the administration's rationale was once the government successfully constructed an enemy group, it could justify detentions without charge, physical abuse, and other drastic means of waging war against the enemy. There is, that is the straight line from the response to 9-11 in the Islamophobia we see today. And don't forget, like, the Abu, Abu Ghraib scandal, um, where... Basically, the U.S. military was caught abusing detainees in these sort of secret rendition sites that they would take, um, you know, sort of suspects of terrorism to in their own country off U.S. soil. The Patriot Act. So. Six weeks after 9-11, the Patriot Act was passed, greatly expanding several government agencies' abilities to acquire information via searches, electronic surveillance, and wiretapping. The same act also introduces searches that did not require the government to notify the private owner of a residence that they had been searched for up to 90 days, so basically secret searches. Some scholars argue that the passage of laws like the Patriot Act was the government's way of capitalizing on a fearful American public by legally legalizing racially targeted policies. 
A poll conducted shortly after the 9-11 terrorist attacks echoed this line of argument when it found that about one third of Americans thought it was acceptable to detain Arab Americans in camps reminiscent of the internment of Japanese Americans during World War II. A 2004 poll by Pew Research Center found that almost half of Americans were willing to exchange certain civil liberties for the cause of national security. Um, as a supplement to the Patriot Act, the U.S. government instituted immigration policies such as the National Security Entry Exit Registration Program in 2002. The Special Registration Program, as it was otherwise known, required male non-citizens above the age of 16 from 25 countries to register with the Department of Homeland Security as a measure of counterterrorism. It is no coincidence that 24 of these countries had predominantly Muslim populations. Out of the 80,000 who registered with the DHS under the Special Registration Act between 2002 and 2003, 13,100 were put into deportation proceedings. Those in the Justice Department who supported this policy explained that it was based on intelligence data already collected to monitor terrorist organizations. Even though the Justice Department claimed that the system was highly sensitive in its targets, it also stated that the system would track all nationals of Iran, Iraq, Libya, Sudan, and, and Syria, even though none of those terrorists were involved in the 9-11 attacks. Or none of the terrorists involved in the 9-11 attacks were from those countries, please excuse me. Ambiguities in interpreting the Patriot Act had led to misapplication of the law by government officials, as well as abuses by enforcement officers. Incidents included airport profiling, verbal harassment, and physical assaults. It had also led to a backlash against Arabs, Muslims, and South Asians, in which hate crimes were on the rise, or are still on the rise, and neighbors are spying on neighbors simply because their, quote, features or traits look threatening. According to the FBI's Uniform Crime Reporting Program, 481 hate crimes were documented against Muslim Americans and Arab Americans in 2008. This was a massive increase from the 28 cases reported in 2000. Whoa. Yeah. Um, wow. Like, that is government policy right there. Um, and a lot of obviously, um, perception, perceptions, influenced and, by like, yeah. Yeah. So the, the U S government also devoted resources to create the transportation security administration in 2001 airport screening once performed by private security firms chosen by the airlines were now assigned to the TSA. Yeah. Nothing bad can happen there. The TSA was empowered to conduct random canine-assisted searches, implement more checkpoints, and place air marshals on thousands of international flights. The TSA holds the no-fly list and the automatic selectee list to controversial terrorism watch lists. 
the no-fly list contains names of individuals who have been labeled as a threat to aviation across the United States. Listed individuals are not allowed on commercial flights that will fly over or are destined to land in the United States or are managed by a U.S. airline. Although the no-fly list and automatic selectee lists predate the 9-11 attacks, they were little used. There were only 16 names on the no-fly list before 9-11. The combined total of names on both lists rose to more than 20,000 by the end of 2004 and 44,000 on the no-fly list alone in 2006. Some, and, you know, that all of this is contained in the Patriot Act, and some of the provisions of the Patriot Act expired in May 2015, especially the ones that had to do with businesses. So, um, that's a pretty comprehensive um, look at the U.S. response. Those responses were then replicated in places like Australia, Britain, New Zealand, France, Germany, other Western countries, the Netherlands, um, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, so just a note to say that the Department of Homeland Security in the United States was only created after 9-11. So it was created officially November 26th to, sorry, November 25th, 2002. Yeah, and didn't it, I think it merged or it it took over INS, Immigration and National, Natu- National Naturalization Services. <laughs> you okay? I'm all right. <laughs> I'm thinking about, hold on, Five Eyes, which is an intelligence alliance yeah. comprising of... Australia, Canada, New Zealand, the United Kingdom, and the United States. Um, They had signed a multilateral treaty for joint cooperation in signals intelligence. Signals intelligence being like electronic intelligence, basically. Uh The origins can be traced back to informal secret, secret meetings during World War II between the British and U.S. code breakers, yada, yada, yada. But it definitely has taken on new sort of mandates after the September 11th attacks. So basically, whatever intelligence is gathered in one country um, is basically shared with the other four countries. So basically, you're fucked. If they make a mistake or if they mischaracterize you, Good luck. That's it. Basically. Okay. So, <laughs> I mean, isn't that what happened with Mehar Arar, to be honest? I didn't add him into uh, the notes. So, Mehar Arar, a Canadian citizen and father of two, was traveling home to Canada after visiting, visiting his wife's family in Tunisia in 2002. While changing planes at New York City's JFK airport, he was detained and held for 12 days by U.S. authorities. He was there, then transferred secretly via Jordan to Syria, where he was held in basically torturous conditions, interrogated for a year. 
in 2003, he was released without charge um, and allowed to return home. On February 2004, in February 2004, the Canadian government established the Commission of Inquiry into the actions of Canadian officials in relation to Mehar Arar. So in 2006, the report was issued. The final report exonerated Arar and categorically states that there is no evidence, there was no evidence linking him to terrorist activity. Was no evidence that Canadian officials acquiesced in the U.S. decision to detain and remove Arar to Syria, but that it is likely, very likely, that the U.S. relied on inaccurate and unfair information about Arar that was provided by Canadian officials. The report also confirms that he was tortured while in Syria, he was cleared of terrorism allegations, and found that the actions of Canadian officials likely led to his being deported by U.S. authorities to Syria. In 2007, Prime Minister Harper issued a formal apology on behalf of the Canadian government. He received uh, $10.5 million in a settlement and an additional $1 million for legal costs. Uh, RCMP Commissioner Giuliano Zaccardelli issued an apology to Arar and his family during the House of Commons Committee on Public Safety and National Security. So basically, the RCMP told a lot of fibs to the U.S. and got him deported to Syria and Canadian officials. So, oh, Canada. So that's a very long-winded case of why Stephen Harper's like tweet is just absolute bullshit. Okay, so in response to these terrorist attacks, uh, on June 8th, Stephen Harper tweeted the following. Canada is a place of tolerism and pluralism. Cruel acts of racial and faith-based hatred must be unequivocally condemned by us all. Lorene and I join our fellow Canadians in praying for the Afzal and Salman families during this unfathomably difficult time. Well, suffice it to say, that got a lot of reaction. Jeez. Did he get ratioed? No. Hmm. But that's because... How does he have 1.2 million followers? The internet's weird. This is just weird. So also in the wake of... um... The, this recent attack, um, the Ontario uh, Liberals uh, introduced a motion into the legislature um, to condemn Islamophobia. And the, was that the Ontario NDP? I would assume. No, the Ontario Liberals. Oh, the Liberals. My bad. Yeah. Oh, look uh, at Del Duca doing something. Look at that. So it was introduced by Ontario Liberal MPP Mitzi Hunter. Um, and basically, it's just a motion to say that, yes, we agree Islamophobia is bad. And the progressive conservatives in Ontario blocked it because they said that the liberals hadn't given them enough time to review the motion and it was unfair that they surprised them this is what the which 
What? That was the conservatives argument, which is like strange given that like, this is just a non-binding thing. This is just like a tacit agreement that this is a bad thing. So I don't know what additional information they would have needed. Why do you need additional information to say killing Muslims is bad? I don't know. Paul Calandra, the government. Oh, gosh, him. Issued a statement defending their decision, accused the liberals of, quote unquote, playing politics and said the statement read, quote, it is very disappointing that the liberal party is playing politics with something as serious as Islamophobia. The liberals are falsely political. Yeah, the liberals are falsely claiming that the government has voted against the motion condemning Islamophobia, but it's not true. What happened today was a liberal MPP with no notice tried to surprise the government with a motion that we still have not seen. It is our policy to turn down all requests for unanimous consent that we have not seen in advance. Uh, I mean, okay, so I feel like, you know, I feel like the liberals probably did pull a fast one. Sure. But like, but, like yeah, Paul Collins' statement continued, quote, if the liberals are serious about this, they're well aware that the surprise motions in the legislature are not the way to do this. They should reach out and work with the government and the NDP and the Green Party on important issues such as this, as we have done in the past, which like, sure, that's fine. But like a heinous attack happened on a Sunday and then later that week, they wanted to just have unanimous consent on this motion. I like, there's not like, it's, it's, you want to leverage the momentum. It's just not a good look. It's not. It's, it's not a good look. It is an awful look. And this idea of you're playing politics with Islamophobia, how is it not political? And on top of that, I mean, I'm sorry, but what? Okay. Mm -hmm. All right. I mean, I'm sure the liberals pulled a fast one and good for them. I guess, you know, we all have to remain relevant, but (laughs) just, it's just, it's one of those things where you're damned if you don't, period. Mm Mm-hmm. And you just look like a racist because how many, how many pictures have I seen floating around of, of, of Doug Ford hugging up uh, Faith Goldie? Yeah. Right. I mean, it's funny because, well, it's not funny. haha, because something similar actually happened in as a result or, in reaction to the Quebec mosque city attack or mosque attacks, Quebec city mosque attacks. Jeez. Um, So in 2017, the federal government tabled a motion to condemn Islamophobia called motion 103, a response to the Quebec city mosque shooting that killed six people and injured 19 others. Um, All but one participant in the conservative leadership race, Michael Chong um, voted against it. Andrew Shear and Aaron O'Toole openly criticized the motion, while, while Kelly Leach and Chris Alexander 
appeared at a rally organized by Rebel Media and described by the Toronto Star's Susan Delacourt as a, quote, hateful free-for-all against political correctness, unquote. That rally took place at Canada Christian College, the institution run by Charles McVetty, who just happens to be a political ally of Ontario Premier Doug Ford. The motion passed in March 2017. Woo! That Ford government loves its white supremacy. Okay, so while Erin gathers <laughs> my, her rage, my sanity, I was gonna say rage, but <laughs> you know, let's go. Let's let's go through what Canada did in the wake of nine eleven. So, as a response to nine eleven, Canada created the Canadian Air Transport Security Authority, or CATSA. The Federal Crown Corporation responsible for screening passengers and baggage. Um, They also strengthened aviation, marine and rail security, including more rigorous screening for port and air employees, enhancements to technology and improved security procedures. I got to say that this came from like um, a government website. So of course they're going to make it seem like they're like they're taking care of us because that's the way they word things. So um, I'm going to try and bad and bitchy it out as much as I can while I'm reading this, but some things might escape me, like improved security procedures. Anyway, so let me go on. Broaden the level of information sharing among the agencies. Uh, involved in detecting terrorist financing. For example, increasing the ability of CRA to provide designated charity information to the RCMP, CSIS, and the Financial Transactions and Reports Analysis Center of Canada to facilitate the investigation of terrorism and to prevent organizations with ties to terrorism from operating as registered charities created the Canadian Border Securities Agency, or CBSA, to provide integrated border services that support national security and public safety priorities, and and blah, 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 blah. Okay. Um, Another, so the agency increased the use of advanced information on goods and services and sorry, goods and travelers heading to Canada and enhanced information sharing and cooperation with national and international partners. Like we said, the five eyes. Created Canada Command operational headquarters that um, deals with the coordination of military resources available for domestic safety, security and defense introduced and brought into law the Anti-Terrorism Act, which I will get to a little later. The act was passed in response to September 11th on December 18th, 2001, also known as Bill C-36, received royal assent that day. Um, 
so let's get to this bill, this Anti-Terrorism Act, the first one. So basically, in response to September 11th, we had two anti-terrorism acts. Number one, in 2001, is just called the Anti-Terrorism Act, Bill C-36. The second one is the Anti-Terrorism Act of 2015. That's Bill C-51 that everybody, that caused a huge uproar. Um, so the first one, causing the greatest concerns, the problems were the definition of terrorist activity, which we started out this podcast really talking about, which would encompass legitimate protest and dissent, the process whereby organizations are put on public terrorist lists without procedural protections, the vague definitions of the new terrorist offenses of participating, facilitating, instructing, and harboring, offenses that can carry substantive substantial penalties and another problem is intrusive new investigative procedures this act took away a lot of civil liberties i don't think that that is i don't think that that's really that controversial however i'm sure it is but what's interesting about this act is the important changes to the privacy act and the access to information act that would prohibit the disclosure of information to Canadians and the creation of new scrutiny layers for charities as that will significantly hamper legitimate operations. So basically, like if you think of, I'm thinking of this new broadcasting bill and what the government wants to do in terms of privacy and the privacy that they want to quote unquote protect Canadians from is the privacy and the data that we're sharing across social networks and on the internet. It does not look like it's going to prohibit national organizations from doing the same thing. And that's sort of like a, a tension that I don't think has been talked about much. Anyway, um, the bill also created a mechanism to publicly identify groups or individuals who are associated with terrorism. So basically a terrorism watch list. Another bill that was introduced in 2012 um, as a response to 9-11 was the Combating Terrorism Act um, in order to renew provisions of the Anti-Terrorism Act that has ex had expired, but also increased maximum prison sentences for some offenses related to harboring terrorism suspects. And the government fast-tracked it and voted it into law by 2013. Sorry, the fast-tracking was the response uh, after the Boston Marathon bombing. And finally, the Anti-Terrorism Act of 2015, known as Bill C-51, was passed by the Harper government that broadened the authority of Canadian government agencies to share information about individuals easily. It also expanded the mandate of the Canadians of CSIS and was described as the first comprehensive reform of this kind since 2001. So it expanded the powers of CSIS, allowing Canadians to be arrested on mere suspicion of future criminal activity, allowing the Minister of Public Safety to add Canadians to the new fly list, 
with illusionary illusory rights of judicial review and perhaps more alarmingly created a new speech related criminal offense of promoting or advocating terrorism these laws were misguided as according to the bc civil liberties union uh, the liberal party came into power in october 2015 promising to reform the bill um so they kind of made a reform, but they kind of didn't. Uh, and it all started with the public consultation process. Uh, the in-person consultations were called utterly demoralizing, while on- online consultations were critiqued by experts for biased and leading questions. Despite receiving over 68,000 comments, the Liberal government was reluctant to release the actual responses, although they eventually did. Um, most people had significant concerns regarding privacy and the government accountability with sensitive data and wanted C-51 to be completely repealed. However, instead, the long-awaited reform bill, C-59, which was announced in June 2019, instead of fully repealing C-51 or making much-needed key reforms, Um, It just tinkered around the margins while introducing a host of new problems. These include things like information sharing provisions being narrowed, though they remain far, far too broad, the creation of a new national security and intelligence review agency, and um, a redress system for people mistakenly caught up in Canada's no-fly list. So those are some of the good stuff they did, but unfortunately, many key issues remain unresolved, and C-59 even added new anti-privacy measures. Most worrying of these include new mass surveillance powers from for CSE, as well as new hacking powers and near-limitless powers to collect data on people in Canada. So you may be asking what's the difference between CSIS and CSE. And CSIS is the Canadian Security Intelligence Service, which gives the power to investigate, collect, analyze, and retain information and intelligence about activities that are suspected of being a threat to Canada. Um, The Community Security Establishment is a federal spy agency that is analogous to the National Security Agency. So CSIS collects what what is called signals intelligence, which includes electronic communications, um, whereas CSIS is more the, I guess, boots on the ground, investigative, FBI-ish-like CIA-like agency. Okay. I have more, by the way, Erin. So I know you're taking a much-needed break, and you're probably gone to the bathroom, but there is more. And, oh, you're there. Good. Hi. (laughs) Erin, say something just to break up my voice before I go on. I have no comment on any of All right. So as if that weren't enough, 
In 2014, the federal government passed Bill C-24, Strengthening Canadian Citizenship Act, which effectively created second-class citizens, allowing Canada to strip people of citizenship if they were dual citizens, landed immigrants, or eligible for citizenship in another country. So if you have like a parent that's foreign-born, for example. In 2016, the Liberal government introduced Bill C-6 to, re- to repeal these provisions. Now, um, all right, look, I think from 2015 to now, I'm not going to go through Trump's stuff because, I mean, I, we don't have time for that. Um, but I'm just going to give a rundown of the uh, 2015 bullshit that jackass parade known as the con- like the conservative oh, platform. Uh-huh. I wondered where you were going with jackass parade. I was like, <laughs> that's my mom. My mom loves that, by the way. She's like, jackass parade is her favorite. Okay. <sighs> Let me take a deep breath. Like an like an a yoga breath. Okay. Because I'm going to run this down in 60 seconds. Okay. I can't wait. Okay. Do you want me to time you? Time me. Okay. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Do, do, do. Um, all right. You ready? Yeah. Go. 2015. The Zero Tolerance for Barbarian Cultural Practices Act, which stated objectives of criminalizing forced marriage polygamy and honor killings advocates working on these issues denounce the effectiveness and the marriage provisions and honor killings and polygamy were already crimes kelly leach who who ran for the leadership of the federal conservatives in 2017 called for new immigrants and refugees to be screened for canadian values and provide proposed a barbarian tip line uh, for snitching on people with, quote, non-Canadian values. Um, da, 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 the kneecap debate. Old stock Canadians. Um, what else we got? Aaron O'Toole, just last June, released a video asking viewers to join the fight to take back Canada. O'Toole, however, failed to identify this nebulous, nefarious forces or enemy combatants, he plans to take Canada back from. But his loaded language was reminiscent of Harper's old stock Canadians and Donald Trump's um, take back America, especially when this in the speech before they ran down the Capitol there. And Derek Sloan, who helped play, uh, who helped make Aaron O'Toole what he is today, um has a litany of racist and bigoted statements. Maxime Bernier is, well, self-explanatory. Done. One minute, 40 seconds. Damn it! (laughs) I should have said two. I should have said two minutes. All right. So there are the receipts. But Uh, that's not even mentioning, like, a little bit, like, the Nakab thing, but also, like, it's not talking about the the law in Quebec where uh, Bill Twenty One, pu- yeah, Bill Twenty One, where like public people who work for like the public service can't wear religious symbols. 
which is specifically targeting those who wear like a hijab or a niqab, even though it affects everyone equally. It doesn't affect everybody equally. That's the whole point is that it's, it's highly Islamophobic and it's highly anti-Semitic. And that's something it, it, it is, it definitely targets people and it targets a specific set of people and you know at a news conference on tuesday the prime minister was asked three times by three different reporters whether or not he would speak more forcefully against bill 21 if you remember in 2019 at one of those debates that i think i was forced to watch at some point because podcast um the prime minister then um was hammering jagmeet's or jagmeet singh over this bill 21 issue talking about how wrong it is and how that's not our values but when it came time and he promised to do something like argue against it or something but when it came time to actually do something well our performative pm became himself so i you know, he said, I've long expressed my disagreement with Bill 21, but I also have indicated that it is for Quebecers to challenge and defend their rights in court, which is what they have been doing. So passing the buck, Calgary Mayor Nenshi. So, you know, I wish we had more time because like Nenshi's like vocal opposition of the Mm. NECAB um, provision this is a conserv- a man who's a conservative or who was a conservative and openly dra- dragged Jason Kenney about this kneecap debate. And he said, I can see the linkages between Quebec's Bill 21 and what we saw happen in London. Granted, right. he is an Albertan and Albertans right. don't have love for Quebec in general, but. I do want to say that like the whole um, recent, you know, war um and fighting in the middle east with israel and palestine mm-hmm. i wonder how and your mention of anti-semitism made me think of this is i wonder how much of like the anti-arab anti-islam sentiment affects people's willingness to think that palestinians should have their own land I think it's, I think there's a direct link. I think, I think what 9-11, and this is why the, the, the response this time to the, the Israel-Palestine conflict, and I'm just speaking Palestine into existence, by the way. Absolutely. (laughs) Um, That conflict was Definitely, when you know you had your your post nine eleven, you could see how Israel benefited from that war on terrorism. Mm-hmm. Um, the 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 state apparatus, the security apparatus, the um, the flow of aid for anti terrorism measures from the mm-hmm. U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, and basically um, a, a tacit approval of, you know, the settlements or the increase in settlements. Right. 
that the underlying all of this is that conflict. And that's why the sort of this sort of shift in sentiment is really pleasantly surprising. And I say pleasantly because, you know, now people are starting to look at the Israeli state as more of an occupying force than they have before. And I think it really, it shows how interconnected things like anti-Muslim and anti-Arab sentiment is related to colonialism. Say it again for the back. (laughs) Colonialism is directly related to an anti-Arab Islamophobic sentiment. And we say it all the time, everything is linked. Everything is linked. Yeah. Because basically, those anti-terrorism measures have criminalized anybody who's browner than white. Great. Okay. (laughs) Well, that's all we got for this episode. So we'll uh, catch you on the flip side. All right. Bye. 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 Bye.